Hello, thank you for visiting the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, feel free to visit our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And now here is this week's message. And this whole series, this bare bones series, has all been about the Holy Spirit. Uh, Three weeks so far, we've got uh, this week uh, to go, or this week makes the fourth week, and uh, again, we'll be continuing on the Holy Spirit. Um, This week, we're going to be looking into Romans 8, but before we get to Romans 8, I want to preface this uh, and lay some groundwork uh, in Romans 7. Uh, because it's going to really, well, like I said, lay the groundwork and foundation for what we're going to be talking about this morning in Romans 8. So let's get started. Romans 7, 21 through 25 reads, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. I don't think anybody in the room can relate with that, right? Like we, we never have uh, intentions and desires in our, our heart and our mind to do something and then not follow through with them, right? I mean, I want to be skinny. <laughs> but apparently, like there are things you have to do in order to get that way. Eat right, healthy, run, exercise, whatever. And therefore, that's a great example of my mind setting to, to, uh, to desire one thing, but my body or my actions not, mirror, not mirroring them, not following through with those very same desires that I truly have within me. Um, I don't know if you can tell, but I do have what doctors like to call a little bit of a weight problem. Amen. <laughs> Wait a minute, what? <laughs> <laughs> that, that is the most enthusiastic response Second Service has ever given me. <laughs> yeah, you are. Way to go. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so we, we set our alarms for the morning and say, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go run. And then we set up a backup and we set it on the dresser. And then we set up a third one. And we put it out in the living room. So like we have to get up. And then... And then early in the morning, 5 a.m. comes along, you get up, you turn the first alarm off, and second one goes, you get up, you go, well, maybe, maybe it's not that important. And we press mute and go on back to sleep. And this is what Paul is struggling with in Romans 7. He, he wants to obey the law and commandment of God, the law code that's been given, but he finds himself not following through all the time with his actual heart's desire. And this, I think, is rooted in, in a misunderstanding of what the law is and how it's meant to work. If you can put up Matthew 5, that'd be great. 
Uh, Matthew 5 is a portion of, of the greatest sermon ever preached, um, and that was, of course, preached by Jesus, um, and it's on the Sermon on the Mount, yeah, and the Sermon on the Mount uh, consists of several chapters, but here in Matthew 5 in particular, we're going to actually deal with what is called, called the six antitheses, all right, which is basically just a a way of saying like the six things you thought were one way but are actually another, okay? Uh, antithesis, if you will. So Matthew 5 says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Hey, that's a pretty good law, right? That's a pretty good way to, to go about living life. Uh, sure, that sounds good. And then he says a word there. What's that next word? But. I made you guys say but. Sorry. My inner 14-year-old just came loose. Um, he says, but I say to you, what does that do? What is that phrase, but I say to you? What does that do to this whole sentence? It negates it. It says everything you just heard, which, which is good, actually is totally wrong. Let me tell you what you're supposed to be doing. So what, what he's referring to here is actually the Torah, the law, the law of Moses. The, there's like a bunch of commandments, right? There, well, there's 10, but then there's also like, a, like 800 and some odd laws in the Old Testament that the Jews were to follow and live by every day, including things from hand washing to how you should wear your beard. Men without beards, I'm sorry, not as holy, according to the Old Testament, according to specific rules. And he's saying this law that was given to you by, does anybody know who gave this law? Moses, yeah, thanks. I, I was actually like, oh, this could turn out to be God, you know, like that, that Sunday school answer, God, Jesus. <laughs> but yeah, in this case, the law was given to Moses and Moses portrayed it to the people. And Moses was this, uh, called the, the proto-prophet. He was the first and the foremost, the, the most uh, recognized and hailed prophet of the time. And what Moses said went. It was the law. And when Jesus comes along and he says, but I say to you, he's negating the law of Moses and he is putting a new one, quote unquote new one out there, which is basically doing what? Is anybody picking up on it? What's that do to like the authority level? Where's Jesus versus Moses? Right. So in this sentence, and others, but in this sentence, Jesus is basically telling the Jewish people who love Moses and see Moses as the proto-prophet, I am higher and more authoritative than Moses himself. And I'm telling you that Moses was giving this law, was given this law for a reason. And for a point, which we're going to get to in a minute. But I'm telling you, you guys missed the point. You guys followed the precept, and you completely missed the principle behind the precept. You missed everything that is feeding that law, feeding that precept, and saying who my, what my heart is about as God. What my my affections go toward as God. And we actually can fall into the same danger. 
That's the difference really between religion and relationship. Relationship says, I know this person, I love this person, I know how they would act. Religion says, this is the law, this is what it says, this is what I do, therefore I'm doing it, but I have no emotional connection to it. So this sets up the difference between per, uh, precept versus principle for us. So you've heard it said, uh, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that everyone who even looks at a woman with lust in her heart has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, some of you might go, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's, he's totally like ignoring women because women can have lust too. And you know, Right, yeah, but at that time, they didn't have a ton of like, you know, clout. And therefore, it was more dangerous for a man to think this way than it was for a woman to think that way because, because it was actually giving power and authority to the man if he, was, if he was allowed to think that way, right? And so he's actually really on your side, feminist, I promise, and I, of which I'm one. If your right eye makes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than it is for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it away from you, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body to go into hell. Now, do you think Jesus is actually asking us to, like, start cutting appendages off? <laughs> Let's rewind that. Do you think that Jesus is actually asking us to start cutting appendages off? No, of course not. I think he's making a point, right? He's trying to make a point that, listen, it's better for you to completely eliminate something out of your life that is causing you to be uh, out of a line with my heart for you and for other people than it is for you to end up somewhere really hot later on, <laughs> right? Okay, so we've, we've set up this basis. Uh, and Paul basically in, in Romans 7, if you put it back up there real quick, Paul is basically coming to this understanding that I try to follow the law and the precept of the law, and it got me nowhere. This coming from Paul, who was like, I mean, he was like the uh, Christian killer, right? Like he was like the guy, like he was the Jew that all the other Jews looked to to, to help with, with uh, setting up uh, barriers against the, this Christian movement growing. And he said, I had the wrong perspective, basically. I wasn't looking at it through the eyes of Christ. I wasn't looking at it through the eyes of principle versus precept. You see, because when you love somebody, you don't strive to test their limits. Right? Right, Marcus? <laughs> We don't strive to test the limits of those we love. If, if your spouse or the one you love says, I love you and I will love you no matter what, that doesn't all of a sudden in your heart become a challenge to see if you can stress that as far as it can go, right? That's not like, hey, all right, let's do this then, right? No, it doesn't. Love, love innately says, 
I want to make sure I do everything I can to cause as least amount of discomfort to you as possible. That doesn't mean you're not, you know, not, you're always going to pick up your towel off the bathroom floor. It doesn't mean that you're always not going to do things to not annoy your wife or your, your spouse or your loved one. But it does mean that you, you do give a darn. <laughs> you try. You try. Like, by calling me fat. Um, <laughs> kidding. Uh, <laughs> Love, in fact, does go the opposite route. It seeks to please the object of our affection, not to test it. So Paul says that, that he was a slave to flesh because of the wrong perspective he had on the whole law code. And once liberation came, we're going to see in, in, in uh, Romans 8, the Spirit of God was given to him, and he was freed from the handcuffs of this fleshly desire, of this law of the flesh, as they call it. And he was given the great counselor that allows him to counsel with God himself rather than having to filter everything through this law, this law code. So Romans 8, now for the real message. <laughs> Romans 8, uh, this is a long passage. We're going to be dealing with Romans 8, 1 through 17 this morning. And so instead of reading it all right now, in which you'll forget in like a minute, we're going to go ahead and take each section by section, if that's okay. So Romans 8 seeks to, seek, seeks to give a solution to the problem outlined in Romans 7. Verse 1 through 2, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Yeah, that is worth a name then. There is therefore, because of what Christ has done, no condemnation. Read for that guilt. And I don't know if any of you have ever felt guilt before. I'm willing to bet you have. Guilt usually isn't healthy. I mean, like, there's a level of healthiness within guilt. But usually the amount of which guilt strikes a person is disproportionate from the amount in which they actually should be feeling guilt. And it comes so hard and so fast that it becomes a handcuff in and of itself. Um, guilt is basically an attack from the enemy. And this guilt in, in, in is, is no longer part of our life as we live by the Spirit, according to Paul. This guilt is removed and the shackles that come along with it are gone. Guilt occupies our time, our thoughts, essentially holding us prisoner, enslaving us in a rut of cyclical patterns and habits that result in finding yourself, no matter how hard you battle and no matter how hard you work, right back where you started, probably deeper in it. Right? Has anybody ever gotten stuck in the mud? Great. Can I ride with all of you? Has anybody ever gotten stuck in the mud? Yeah? Uh, go ahead and give it as much gas as you can and see how far that gets you. Right? Zoom. A little bit further deeper. Zoom. You like my sounds? A little bit further deeper. But. But. Remember that little transitional phrase. But the good news is the law of the spirit rather than the law of the flesh in which we live in now 
having accepted the Spirit into ourselves. Now, competition gives way to cooperation with others. Now, isolation, guilt, isolation, gives way to community. Defeatism, I can't do it. I can't be this. I can't be that. Defeatism now is chiseled away to reveal a resilience that will mature eventually into a confidence and knowledge of who the Father is and how he views each of us. And that's going to be a pinnacle point. And hostility is softened into compassion and empathy. All of a sudden, the person on the other side of the political party line is more of a person and less of an idea. And as they become less of an idea and more of a person, they become much harder to dismiss. I'm sure many of you know a Democrat who's really a great person. And others of you know a Republican who actually really is a great person. That's because hostility has given way of empathy. You've seen that as a person and not just an ideology. <clears throat> Verses three to four. For the law could not do, uh, sorry, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit those of us who work who live according to the spirit rather than according to the law code the, the flesh actually have hope actually have have an end game in mind that is full of life the law code given us to by, by god which was good and was intended to be good was only going to work if it was based on one premise. And that premise was that we truly loved God. Passionately, affectionately loved God. But that very same thing that would make the law code thrive and that would make it work was also its undoing. Because if that, lack, if that love was lacking, if that true affection for the heart of God was lacking, then the law code became useless. It was weakened by our flesh, is what Paul says here. What happened was, because the lack of our affectionate and passionate love for our creator and father was there, the law code was re reduced to just a mere set of codes that we needed to make sure we followed so we didn't tick the guy off. Rather than a guideline for life on how we can live more fully in his presence. See, this doesn't dismiss the law. 
I want to be clear. This does not dismiss the law in the Old Testament. It doesn't say it was useless and pointless. What it does say, though, is because of our broken nature, we couldn't use it appropriately. Interestingly enough, uh, this is the NASB, and in the ESV, the English Standard Version, uh, verse 4, it says, so that the requirement of the law, uh, it actually says in the ESV, the, the righteous requirement of the law. And it's, it's neat to me because this whole, that whole line, the righteous requirement of the law, is singular. How many codes did we say? How many laws did we say are in the Old Testament? Like 800 and some odd, right? And here Paul is talking about the singular righteous requirement of the law. That tells me that this law, this righteous requirement of the law, can be fulfilled with or without following the law code that was given by Moses. So what's the greatest commandment? Huh? Love your neighbor. Anything else? Love God. So a lawyer walks up to Jesus. It's not a joke, I promise. Um, a lawyer walks up to Jesus and he says, hey, Jesus, um, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus responds, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second's like it, love your neighbor as yourself. You see, Jesus saw those two, two, four, two. But he saw those two, I am not a crook. Uh, those two commandments as inextricably linked together. You can't have one with the other, without the other. The lawyer's question was, what is the single most great commandment you can think of, Jesus? And his response is, love the Lord your God, and the seconds like it, love your neighbor as yourself. They can't be separated. You see, the end game was not fulfillment of the religious rules and regulations. It wasn't a game that was meant to be scored or tallied. The righteous requirement was, in fact, an affectionate, warm embrace and realization of our relationship with the Father and our relationship with It was always meant to be an understanding that we are sons and daughters of the king, princes and princesses, the pride and joy of his eye, his beloved. And this is key because he wants relationship. And as he wants relationship and desires relationship, then we begin to worship because as we come into contact with who he is, we realize that it's big and that it's awesome. When I lived in England, um, Luke, you could probably attest to this. I remember uh, Americans were always saying, you know, oh, that's awesome, man, that's awesome. And the Brits were always like, why do you guys use awesome so much? Like you overuse it completely. Think about the word you're saying. It's awe-inspiring. It is awesome. Was that burger really awesome? <laughs> the donor kebabs, maybe. But, <laughs> um, 
And as we come in contact with the awesomeness of him, it, autom- it, it will turn into worship of him. And as it turns into worship of him, we become more familiar and intimate with him. And as we become more intimate with him, we begin to understand who he is more. We begin to see ourselves through his perspective. We begin to see ourselves how he sees us. Why? Because we get magic glasses? No, because we begin to understand his heart. And as we understand his heart, we understand his heart towards us. And as we begin to understand our hearts towards us, then we also start to have the realization of his heart towards the person sitting next to me and the person across that party line and the person with another ideology in another country. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds to the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, uh, the things of the spirit, uh, for the mind is set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Getting on board with the idea that we are the beloved sons and daughters of the king and turning our hearts towards him as our father will lead us into the love and affection that comes with that relationship. As we become more intimate with the father, we begin to know his heart and as we know his heart we become interested in loving the very things that his heart loves it's not an awkward silence it's intense What are the things that he loves? What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You notice the last word in that sentence is what? (laughs) The last word in that sentence is yourself. This life of other-centeredness God-centeredness, others-centeredness is a life that will redeem the life of self-centeredness. Focusing on the Spirit leads to life-giving relationships that benefits any relationship and any community of people. I know this is extremely utopian, but for one second, just imagine with me A world where literally, and I mean that literally, everybody is more concerned about making sure other people are taken care of than they are about making sure themselves are taken care of. I know, it's like really hard to get to because it's so utopian, but imagine that. 
And that's what Christ is calling us to. If everybody were truly of that mindset, crime, gone. The need for jails, gone. The need for homeless shelters, gone. The need for uh, food lines, gone. Because the job of the church would be actually being done by the church itself. The Father actually wants to be in relationship with us. He doesn't just want to be a magician that's invited to our party. He wants to be a full participant. He wants to be the father who who sets up the party, who opens up his table to his children's friends, who says, come, celebrate this with me. Now let's be clear. This intimate affection and and knowledge of our father and the alignment of our heart to, to his heart and affections doesn't make us exempt from hard times. Just because you love the Lord doesn't mean like you've got an easy life. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Nor does it make us uh, some sort of spiritual fortress that's impenetrable to the consequences of our past poor decisions. But Christ died After he died, what did they do with his body? Buried him. And after they buried him, he stayed there, stayed dead. End of story, right? Some of you are like, wait, I've never been to church like this before. (laughs) No, of course not. No, he was resurrected. He came back from the dead. He defeated death, redeemed it to a point. Christ was dead and buried and resurrected after death, and the Spirit of God that did that is also in you, and He's there to redeem your lost hopes, your lost dreams, the mistakes you've made, the things that you thought were dead and buried. See, redemption is not about eliminating mistakes or covering up deficiencies as if they've never happened. Redemption is about splaying them wide open so that you can investigate them for yourself and that they can be redeemed and repurposed for your benefit and for others' benefit. One of, the, one of the hardest uh, things that I ever went through uh, was when I was a kid, actually. And, um, well, let's just get real for a minute. <laughs> I was actually sexually molested, um, not by a family member or anything like that, but I was. And I remember the blame and the guilt that I had pointed towards me 
which then at one point um, turned into anger and frustration pointed outwards towards that, per towards that person. And I also remember the greatest thing that the Lord has ever done in me was waking up one morning and realizing that I had forgiven all. And I don't just mean forgotten. I mean forgiven. To the point if that person were to come into the room today, I could give them a hug and say, I love you because Jesus loves you. That's redemption. That's repurposing. Later on, able to use that story to minister to other kids who had had the same issue. Or similar, anyway. Verse 16. Can you go to the next slide, please? Thank you. For... Oh yeah, we didn't read 9 through 15, sorry. We went through the, the notes, but... So 9 15, however you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, um, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to you, or to him. If Christ is in you, though, the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, will also give you life to the mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's the redemption that we're talking about. So then, brethren, we are not under any obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if you live according to the spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body. You will live. For all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. Abba, Father is an interesting term there too. Literally, like the, the, most, the most accurate translation we can have for that is daddy. Like that most raw and, and innocent and infantile terminology in term of endearment for a father, daddy. You see, Christ, God, the Spirit, want a relationship with you. And they want you to know, and he wants you to know, that you have a place at his table, that you are a son or a daughter of God. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Again, you are children of God. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit of God reveals who we really are. When God's Spirit comes in contact, intimate contact with your spirit, then you become awakened to the idea and understanding of what your true identity is. And it testifies to the fact that you are sons and daughters of the living God. And if sons and daughters of the living God, 
then also completely capable of overcoming any of the deficiencies you think you have that make you ineligible. That may even debilitate you. And interestingly enough, he, he repeats this, uh, well, not repeats, but he builds on it. So he says, we're, we're, God, we're sons, sons and children of God. And if children, also heirs, not hares, heirs, right? Um, and, and basically what he's saying here is not redheaded stepchildren. You're children. You're not redheaded stepchildren. Sorry, Andrew, if you're in the building. You're not some Cinderella story that's relegated to cleaning up the dishes and sweeping the floors and making sure the bed's made and, and making sure that your, your nasty siblings are, are uh, taken care of before you get to do anything that, that remotely looks like self-care. We're actually invited to take a place at our Father's table, to take a glass from that table and drink fully of the wine of security and comfort that comes with being a son or daughter of a good, good father. Drink deeply because it's yours. We are complete heirs to the kingdom, and as heirs to the kingdom, we partake in the freedom that is afforded to us because we are princes and princesses. We're going to end with one story. This is a story of a man who was sick, sick and tired of working so hard. Uh, he was the, the, the son of a very wealthy man uh, with, with tons, of, tons of land and tons of cattle and, and, and lots of money. And one day this entitled young man went to his dad and said, Dad, you're dead to me. For all intents and purposes, I'm sick and tired of all this pomp and circumstance. Give me what's mine when you die, now, so that I can enjoy it. And the father, being a good father, <laughs> letting him learn from his mistakes, reached into his proverbial wallet, handed, him, ha handed over a small fortune, and let him go. Gave him what he wanted, right? This boy went out, obviously. Probably picking up on something right now. This boy went out and he spent it all. He gambled it all away. Ended up finding himself homeless and, and looking for, for scraps to eat. And so he went to a local pig farm and found a job and, and found himself so hungry that he was looking at the slop that was laid down in front of the pigs. And I don't know if you've ever been on a pig farm Yuck. <laughs> He's like, those look even good. I'm so hungry. And he begins to get an idea, and that idea seeds in his head for a couple of weeks, and he continues to work, and finally he's had enough again. And he says, you know what? I'm going to go back to my dad's house. And when I get back to my dad's house, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to throw myself down in front of him. I'm going to beg his forgiveness. And, um, and no, no, I'm not going to beg his forgiveness. I'm going to just, I'm just going to ask that he takes me back on as a servant at least. and gives me a place at least in the servant's quarters. Because my, my father's servants are, eat a heck of a lot better than I'm eating right now. So he got up and he, put his pig buckets down, 
and started walking back home. And the whole time he's walking, he's thinking, okay, when I get there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit my knees and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my hands out. I'm going to beg. No, no, even better. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go full spread eagle, face to the ground, and I'm just going to completely submit and tell him how sorry I am and that, that uh, I don't deserve to be, a, you know, to be treated any more differently than a servant and, and a slave. And, and just, if you'll just let me be a slave in your place. And all of a sudden he realizes that his mind has been consumed by this thought process and he looks up and realizes he's one hill away from his father's farm. And it hits him. Oh my gosh, I can't do this. I can't do this. This this is too scary. uh, My father's going to... No, I mean, he deserves... I mean, he has every right to kill me. I I can't go back right now. And his mind uh, consumes his... His his thoughts consume his mind again and, and he looks up and there's somebody coming towards him. And he says, oh no, that's probably Biff. Oh, Biff's going to kick my butt. He's going to break my arm. I've got to go right now. And, and before he can even turn around, he looks back and, and the guy's closer. He's, he's, he's sprinting so fast. And he's like, oh, what do I do? What do I do? And he, he looks up and he realizes that that, fil- that figure coming towards him is familiar and it's not Biff, it's his father. He goes, oh no, and he drops to his knees. Then he drops to his face and he says, dad, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Would you please just take me back into your household and let me be a slave? And his father's sprinting still. And he's like, oh no, he's preparing for this impact. And his father comes in, he picks him up off the ground. And instead of slapping him around, saying, you idiot, he picks him up and says, you don't need to be on your knees in my place. You are my son. And even further, he takes him and he holds him close because he's his son. And he takes him back to the house and he says, get the best cow you can find and slaughter it and prepare it because we're going to be feasting tonight. And you know the 30-year the reserves that I've got in the cellar? Go and get them because we're drinking the best wine because my son's back here. And he sits him at a place at the table and he gives him wine and he gives him food. No questions asked because he was a son of the master. Interestingly, though, that story doesn't end all on a happy note. Because how many of you know that this story I'm talking about, the, man, the young man has a brother, right? His brother comes back after working in the fields and he sees this party going on. He's like, huh, what the heck? I didn't know about this. Awesome. And he walks in and opens the door, smiles on his face, and then he scans the table And there's that jerk of a no-good brother sitting at the table. He says, Dad, what are you doing? You got the 30-year reserves out and you killed our best cow to celebrate him coming back? I have sat here and worked my butt off for you. I am the one that stuck around. I didn't go spend half your money and you're going to celebrate his return? And instead of having a seat at the table, instead of recognizing 
a life of other-centeredness, instead of rejoicing in the fact that his lost brother had returned, that a relationship had been reconciled and healed, he's bitter over it. And he turns away and doesn't get to enjoy any of the beef, any of the wine, or any of the celebration. Matthew 5, 43 through 48. Back to the six antitheses real quick. You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You see, the precept was love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Sounds about right, right? But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be considered sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son, his son, right? Globally star planet thingy to rise on both the unjust and the just. On the righteous, they get rain and so does the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet those, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This life of others-centeredness, the life of recognition of who we are in the King and who others are, in the king. Allow us to overcome whatever deficiencies we think disqualify us for his table. So this morning, we just invite you, Holy Spirit. We invite you to blow a wind of change through our hearts. Spirit, we say collectively that every room in our heart is open to you, that every hidden place is revealed to you. There's no place that's off limits for your spirit to work in us, Father. Spirit, we ask that your wind would blow afresh in us. That we would not cover up and not forget our deficiencies, not cover up and not forget our past mistakes, but that we would learn from them. that we would move forward in them. So that we might be called sons and daughters of the living God. We love you, Jesus. If you're on the ministry team this morning, would you mind 
finding your way back to this side of the building. We've got some people on the ministry team that have been trained um, uh, for prayer and ministry with you. If you have any ailments in your body, uh, physical or spiritual, uh, if you have anything that you just want prayer for, these guys are really great to do that. Other than that, as our fearless leader would say, the Mass has ended. Go in peace. Thank you again for stopping by the podcast at the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening here at the Vineyard, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Until next time, peace to you.